Hello everybody, my name is Damon Lewis, this is the Astro World. Uh, today I'm talking with a gentleman, Chris Hoffman, and I'm going to just do a short intro to this uh, to this interview. The interview is about less than an hour. So uh, Chris and I talked about a lot about Carl Jung, Carl Jung, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, and using a journal not just to write down your dreams but also to write down the things that happen during the day so I've been I've been doing that lately and uh, it's pretty cool results but uh, you'll hear about it in the interview so I uh, hope you're having a great day and uh, here's the interview All right Today we are talking with uh, Chris Hoffman, and uh, Chris is uh, interested in uh, the works of Carl Jung, and he's done a lot of studying on that, and we're going to talk to him about that today, and he has a lot of cool, interesting stuff to talk about with dreams. So, hey, how's it going today, Chris? It's good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, good. I was excited to have you on just through our our emails when you were saying that you had 30 years worth of journals and that right. not only do you have dream journals but you do day journals right I yeah. actually I actually just from your email I started doing day journals and I mm -hmm. I saw some results like you know within a couple of days seeing crossover stuff so I really appreciate the concept yeah, well, that's the thing with journaling, whether it's dreams or just your day journal. Once you write it down, more or less without thinking about it, just let it flow, and then put it aside for a while, usually a few days or a week, then you go back, that's when you really start to see things. And, you know, what I do is I write down my dreams when I get up in the morning and do a brief analysis of them, not an in-depth analysis, but briefly, and then, you know, do your day journal, um, separately, and then when you go back and you you know cross-reference those two, you really start to see how a things that are happening in your daily life are in your dreams. But then also too, you see like the deeper things, maybe from you know your past or things you're conflicted about, start to come out. Yeah, I actually the I actually had a dream that sort of influenced reality because I remembered the dream, and it gave me comfort. And I was like, oh, okay. And it, you know, it was like a, it was a romantic experience. And then it, it gave me comfort when it actually happened. And kind of vice versa. Mm -hmm. I had a, had something happen during the day that I saw it happen in my dream. And I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that's very common with people, you know, having, having stuff in reality that creeps into your dreams. Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing with dreams is, I, I think anyway, is that the, um, the unconscious is trying to talk to you, but it's trying to talk to you in the language it thinks you understand, which you consciously may not. Because uh, Jung, really, his concept is that your unconscious is like, let's say, a really big car. It's full of all these different characters. And usually what happens is your ego, you know, your cool yourself now, is driving that car and doesn't want to relinquish control to these other, what he called, archetypes in your unconscious. But if something happens, like let's say you're attacked or whatever, you have to let your like warrior archetype drive the car. 
Yeah. So it's the same thing when you fall in love. Your lover archetype has to take over and drive the car because ego is just, you know, it's too strong. It wants to be in control all the time. So that's um, that's a tie into lucid dreaming for me because what I do is one of Jung's techniques, which is called active imagination. And active imagination is when you're in a deep, deep meditative state and you start to beckon these different archetypes to let them come out. So obviously, you know, all great religions and whatnot, they talk about how to get past your ego. And once you do that, then you can let these other characters come out. And what happens is that once you start, once you establish a rapport with them, then slowly they will start to show up in your dreams. And since you do have a conscious, semi-conscious, uh, you know, rapport with them, lucid dreaming becomes a lot easier. Cool. Yeah, I'm 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 starting to see because I'm still learning lucid dreaming, and mm-hmm. it it almost feels like we always talk about the ego. <clears throat> I'm starting to feel like my subconscious is it's not necessarily wanting to be in control, but it's it's kind of stubborn. It's it's stubbornly uh, staying like hidden mm-hmm. or uh, you know elusive to me, and. Um, one of the things I've kind of pointed to, I like to think of my subconscious as being more like a child mind because I have a seven-year-old son. And when you try to talk to a, a child, it's sometimes difficult to get a straight you know, answer because they don't have the, right. the, the resources and information to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, too, that, you, it sounds kind of strange to say, but your unconscious is in the dark, you know, but your unconscious only knows what you feed it basically through emotions. So I think that's why dream images are so elusive. But once you really like start to set up a rapport with your unconscious, it, it'll kind of be like really hard at first, but then all of a sudden like this floodgate will open up and stuff will just pour out. So, you have to kind of take it slow and just, you know, understand that this is part of you, but it's a part of you that is hidden. And again, you know, I'll say it all the time, the ego's like got this door closed to keep keep all that stuff out. But behind that door is where your true genius lies and where your potential is and all these other things that your ego may not want to share the driver's seat with. Yeah. Yeah, I find that same thing. And... Um you know, it's just it's just the way I think of it, about it. So if, if people, other people don't think about it that way, it's fine. But I find that same thing when I'm, you know, talking to my my son, is I can ask him things, ask him things, but if I'm just quiet, and I I have that rapport, like you're saying, he will just come out with things that he's thinking about or whatever that are that are of uh, like an infinite wisdom. He might not, mm-hmm. he might not have the tools and the intelligence yet that you know of lifetime build, but he has that infinite wisdom that's born with him. So like uh, when I was teaching him to ride a bike, when he finally was able to ride the bike, he said something that was really wise. He said, "I feel like I've always been able to do it, but I just you know I just did it now." Like like he mm-hmm. he came to realize what it was to just balance. Right. So it's kind of interesting. So for you, um, 
do you have a technique? Do you actively lucid dream, or does it sometimes happen spontaneously? What's like? What's your relationship with lucid dreaming? Well, I um, I do this technique, like I was saying, active imagination. Okay. And I, you know, one of the things I do is I'm artist to make artwork, so I'm able to illustrate these types of things when I you know have them happen to me, these experiences. So basically. Um, like with me, my dad died when I was very, very young, so I didn't know him. And I was um, in Central Park, just sort of like meditating and relaxing and just, you know, having a, a moment with myself. But I was working on this piece of artwork that I couldn't solve the problem, the puzzle of. And I was working with the number seven, that magic number. So I was making this piece of artwork that involved the number seven. And I'm there, and I'm like meditating on it, I'm relaxing, blah, 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 blah. And then with active imagination, like I said before, I think it's when you're really relaxed, you focus on one of these archetypical characters in your head. So you just think of any image that comes to mind that represents this person or this character. And after a while, if you're lucky, they will come to you. So I was there, and I was, you know, like asking my father for help with this, even though I didn't know him. And then the strangest thing happened because I'm sitting there and around the corner, like in my left vision, left, right side of my head, I could see like a peripheral vision. It was like I, there was something moving, right? It was coming towards me. And I look up and I see a monk, a monk with his head down, with the robes on, floating around this corner. It floats right in front of me and stops. And he lifts his head. It was my father. Right? Now, as weird as that sounds, I mean, that's just that's what happened. I don't know whether what how that happened, but um, so then he just said to me something. He said, "Alphonse Lorraine," right? And I'm like, what? you know. And then he disappeared. He just like dissipated. So I jumped on the bus. I took it down to the uh, research library on Forty Second Street. And I run in there and I go talk to the research librarian. Um, I said, what do you know about Alphonse Lorraine? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, calm down, calm down. He takes you over and he opens this book, right? It's about Alphonse Lorraine. And it's a map. And the first line said, Alphonse Lorraine is in the shape of number seven. And I thought, wow, that's you know, really strange or whatever. And then um, so I read this whole thing about it. Because I didn't know anything about Alphonse Lorraine, really. And it revealed to me all this all this family stuff that didn't necessarily I mean I guess I knew it in a way, but when I read this article about this you know, that was on Serain, it was like my whole family history. So um that just kind of gave me this thing where if I want to contact my father in my sleep, in my lucid uh, dreaming, I just write down the questions I have for him by my bed and put his name on them, write down the questions by my bed, and then so that, you know, that technique, so you turn the light off, it's the last thing you see, you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you see, and that, you just leave it there for a while, and all of a sudden, they'll come to you, and they'll, they'll answer questions to you, that's the amazing thing, you know, but you have to, A, believe you can do it, and B, just let it unfold, you can't really force it or anything. So that's what I do. I just, you know, I contact different archetypes in my waking state and then solicit them at night, so to speak. And the thing that helps, too, is that you go and you get 
specific things that like pertain to them. Like my dad had this certain kind of truck. So I had gotten like, you know, models and pictures and stuff. I basically made a file about everything that I thought about him or knew about him. And you have that too. So it just builds up this whole sort of encyclopedia of this archetype. And I guess it just helps them or they or whatever that is, that energy field, come out at night. That's really interesting. Have you ever heard of uh, psychometry? It's, um, yeah, I've heard of it, but I'm not sure what is that. I'm not sure what that is. Psychometry is some uh, mediums and psychics use, and, and regular people can try this too. This is actually, I've, I've tried it. It's one of the things that in books, you know, somebody has suggested this idea where you just um, take an item from a person that maybe a ring or something that they wore or that was dear to them or maybe a picture to you know something that has that person's energy and mm -hmm. if you hold it in your hand and you, you let your mind go blank what can filter in and pop up are images of that person's life of something that may have been important to them or you know you're basically kind of tapping into the resonance of that mm -hmm. that person's energy so hmm. yeah <clears throat> I've actually tried that before I've had an experience like that myself it's actually it's a lot easier than it sounds it, uh, connecting with this this sort of resonant field of energy hmm yeah you know just again there's so many things like that that they can't explain but when you actually try it yourself it's like you want to tell the world, but you know you have to be careful who you tell. So, uh, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and this again, whatever that ether is that Tesla was always mentioning, it makes sense that it would, um, you know, touch the molecules. Yeah, I don't know. When you're talking about uh, telling people, I, I spend a little time in my early twenties where I was reading a lot of books and talking to a lot of people. And it, mm -hmm. it'd be like half the people I talked to thought I was crazy, and half the people I talked to were like, "Oh yeah," and then they would tell me a story. So right. it can be a, it can be you have to be like, kind of brave to to put yourself out there like that because you will get ridiculed, but you also get a lot of benefits mm -hmm. of of finding people that also have similar experiences or more, you know, or different experiences, and it makes your your experience much more rich. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I like about, you know, going to this Jungian library and talking to the librarians because virtually almost anything that you say to them, like I said, they have a term for it, and they take you very seriously. They don't discount anything. And I met a doctor there who, um, he was, he's a regular therapist, and he had this woman come to him one day, and the woman was very upset and everything. A new client, she comes to him and, you know, she's very upset. And she had this roll of paper in her hand. And so she's sitting there, she says, you know, my son passed away and he's very young. And he got really sick very suddenly and blah, 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 blah. And she basically came in initially for, like, grief counseling. And then before she left, she said, can I show you something? And he said, sure, what is it? And she unrolls this piece of paper. And it was a portrait, that, well, a, a drawing the kid had done of himself like his last days alive 
So all the medical treatment and everything that he had, he drew on this, you know, with crayons on this picture of himself. So the woman says, the thing that's so weird is he drew this like three years ago and he's totally healthy. So this guy was like, you know, trying to figure out, well, how could somebody do that? And he found that children seem to have the ability to predict how, if they're going to get sick as a child, they have the ability to predict it somehow. And he basically wrote, you know, amazing book and spent years as a therapist with children like that. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where initially people were saying to him, what are you talking about? His kids, you know, how can a kid predict, like, exactly the medical treatments he was going to be going through? So there is some kind of, yeah, this weird wisdom that's in your body. And then there's this wisdom that's in your unconscious. And then there's whatever that forces that moves the planet, you know, it's probably all the same thing, but, uh, yeah, that's what's so cool. You know, if you don't know, you're going to go out and try to find it, you know what I mean? And if you just give up and say, oh, no, it's all, you know, baloney, don't believe it, you won't. So, and that's where you grow as a person, and that's where I think you become more balanced psychologically, because if you, if you really think you don't know, then you're in a much better place. And if you think, oh, yeah, I know everything, guy, oh, guy, yeah, that will never work, you know. So that's yeah. what I look for. I like to think of um, <clears throat> those kind of things. You know, when you're a child, you believe anything that people tell you, so that's where you believe in Santa Claus and stuff like that. And then there's a crossover period when you become a teenager and when you start getting a little older that Santa Claus is not real, you question, you question religion, and mm -hmm. if you're lucky, you come back full circle, and those questions that you might have asked, you can actually get back some of that. Maybe you won't get back the same innocence as when you were a child, but you can at least further your, your belief system instead of just rejecting all things that are not, you know, that are, that are unseen or unproven. And it, it really adds to a depth of, you know, empathy and feeling if you can believe in stuff, if you can believe in things and not just, uh, you know, if, if you have questions about the nature of reality or the nature of the world, instead of dismissing things and you dismiss other people, like to, if you dismiss all other religions but your own, that shows a lack, mm. of, a lack of empathy. Yeah, well, religion, that's the big one, isn't it? Boy. It is. Billions of people on Earth all believe in religion, and if you just dismiss all of it, you know, if each person is dismissing the other, and then, you you know, the religion, religious people are dismissing spirituality, and spirituality is dismissing religion, it, uh, it becomes one big ball of, you know, chaos and... Yeah, no, it's amazing, you know, because I think they found that the last Neanderthals lived on the rock at Gibraltar, and they found these really kind of, I guess, elaborate Neanderthal graves. They didn't know that Neanderthals were like, you know, God-fearing people, and they also had very, very primitive drawings on the walls, too, but... Um, yeah, there's something about that that's like, you know, like in your DNA almost, that there's, you know, a quest for spirituality. And yet there's this intense animosity towards other forms of spirituality. 
you know, I mean, because Buddhists are probably, the, for the most part, the exception, well, not totally, but, uh, yeah, and it's always baffled me how religions can get so, uh, I don't know what the word is, but uh, just so anti-religion, you know. Yeah. So. Well, oh, um, one of the questions I was going to ask you is about uh, all your journals. You were mm-hmm. saying the, uh, the journals you've, Done in your experience with your with your father, is there mm-hmm. any other uh, journals that stick out in your mind as being uh, coincidental, or <clears throat> to use the the Jung phrase, like uh, synchronicities, things that stick out in your mind that would be a, a fun thing to share? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, there's been a few. The one that. Uh, well, two come to mind initially, but the one that comes to mind is that uh, I did have a dream. Well, this is more of like a precognizant dream. So I don't know if that would fall into that ballpark or not. Um, and the other thing was that I, um, when I first started to read about, you know, psychology and whatnot, um, and I, the first time I tried this um, active imagination technique, what it did was I, um, I was really heartbroken, going through a bad time in my life, and I decided to contact my feminine side, or as Jung called the anima. So anima is a man's woman, and animus would be a woman's man inside, the unconscious. And as you would imagine, if you have a feminine side to you and you're a regular guy, you've suppressed it all your life. Like, you've really suppressed it, you know. So it's in there, but in a lockdown so I you know got this book about it and I started to experiment with an active imagination to contact my feminine and it was one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me because I was in my apartment I lived downtown at the time and I was in my apartment it took about 20 minutes or half an hour and all of a sudden she came to me right and my apartment shook violently like, it was like a train that was running through my apartment. And I'm holding onto my bed for, like, dear life. I'm like, what did I do? Oh, my God, what have I done? And then this image of my ex-girlfriend, the woman I was so heartbroken about, was, like, up there looming at me, screaming at me, right? like, in the exorcist voice. So now I'm, like, really terrified. I'm like, oh, what's going on? What did I do? She's just screaming, yelling, the apartment shaking violently, and I'm holding onto the bed. So then it stopped. Right? And I'm like, oh, my God, that was incredible. What's old here? And I walked around for a few days. Like, I felt like I was sedated. I just walked around kind of like feeling like I was rubbery for two days. And then something happened, and all of a sudden I went to this amazing um, stream of creativity. For like six months, I just couldn't stop. I started really super creative for six months. And then it slowed down. And I figured, wow, that was incredible. I got to jump again, do it again. So I did it again. But this time, it was very, very peaceful. And what happened to me was that I didn't see the ex-girlfriend, but I saw my entire life pass in front of me very slowly, very pleasantly. But it was only, it was in my dream images. So all my images from a child, you know, teenager, et cetera, et cetera. I just showed my life in dreams. And then the same thing happened. I like stopped for a day or two, felt sedated, and then I started getting creative again. So I've always found since that happened that 
you know, that anima, that feminine side, you know, tries to talk to you, tries to get your attention. Like it came to me and screamed at me because I had suppressed it for so long. And it just wanted to kind of make contact and be just, you know, be given credit for existing. Um, and then now, so whenever I dream about a woman, I always say to myself the next morning or whatever, or in the dream when I try to talk to her, you know, I know your anima, you know, so I call it like anima, you know, what, how can I help you? What do you want to know? How can you help me? Blah, blah, blah. What's going on? So for me, again, that active imagination thing, you contact the archetype in advance and establish a rapport and then, you know, go out, research, find things in your life that you like, you know, if you're trying to research your warrior side, all this, you know, like toys you had as a kid that you liked and what movies you like and all that things. And just start this like, you know, like a book, like a binder full of, you know, for your warrior side. And then it will slowly start to come out to you, hopefully. Uh, I've, so that's, heard, that's, uh, I've heard that kind of stuff, too, the stuff that you suppress. Um, is, that, is that a Jung uh, philosophy, yeah. too? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, Jung believes that, um, yeah, this, is the, this is the heavy one. Jung believes that there's this, part of us that it's called the shadow and what the shadow he implies is the parts of yourself and the things that your body does that you or society has taught you to reject right like don't put your finger in your ear what's the matter with you you know well it's a little kid what's wrong with putting your finger you know whatever so the shadow is this thing that it's like he, he called it a shadow bag so when you're a real little kid, you know, they tell you, don't put your fingers in your ear, don't swear, don't steal, don't, 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 and as a kid, you start filling this bag of the stuff you want to do, especially things you want to do with your body, into the shadow bag. So when you get older, you're dragging this giant bag behind you of all this stuff that, you know, you repressed. But Jung believed that within that shadow, because that's the dark, dirty part of you, if you think about it, that's where the gold is. That's where your greatest gifts are. And the stuff that you reject about yourself, that's your that's your gifts are, you know. And, you know, usually gold is like, yes, in the ground somewhere. It's covered up, it's hidden. You have to go find it. You have to dig it out. Um, but this shadow will really, really manifest itself in your dreams. Oh, my God. You know, those, not just nightmares, but just some of these characters that show up that you're like, oh, my God, this person's so repulsive. You know, who could that be or whatever? And then you start to think, oh, it's just the shadow, you know? Because I had this dream, like, recently where my shadow came out. It was wearing this kind of, like, not a tool belt, but it had a belt on with all these weird instruments on it. And I'm looking at it. I'm going, what is that? What is that? You know, it's like going to me, oh, you find out. You find out. So that's another thing I do is anytime I have a dream or whatever, I have a lucid dream, I always go out and try to find the elements in that dream physically. You know, and then you see, like, you know, you go and you see that thing, whatever it is, and then you kind of don't think about it for a day or two or a week or a month, and all of a sudden, you walk down the street, and all of a sudden, boom, oh, my God, that's what it means, you know? So, again, it's this code, like your unconscious, your dreams are trying to talk to you and tell you stuff, but it's this code that they think you understand because that's what you let get into your unconscious through your emotions. Uh, I've heard it said... In um, in some books that I've read, 
the uh, mm-hmm. one book I, I actually did a, a review on on the podcast, uh, Field Guide to Lucid Dreaming, they talk about if you're having nightmares and you can actually get yourself into a lucid dream, you can actually face whatever monster it is. Right, right, and, exactly, yeah. And you don't have to just fight it. You can fight it. No. But you can say to the to the monster, what do you represent? And the monster will just tell right. Because that monster was built up from something. Before it was right. a monster, it was something, just a regular mm-hmm. dream character trying to talk to you, and it and you didn't listen to the to the regular, whatever character was that I was trying to talk to, so it became a monster, and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how your life works too. Is uh, if there's something you're ignoring in your life, it starts off maybe you miss a bill payment or you know whatever it is if you're having trouble finances, if you're having trouble with your spouse, whoever, you know, if you're having trouble with your children, it'll start off very small, and then it becomes big and overwhelming and unmanageable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And also, uh, <clears throat> one of the things I was thinking about when you were when you're talking about that kind of stuff, the, the shadow stuff being the gold mine, I've done, I, I did a little bit of time doing some comedy, because I'm here in New York City. And um, basically, everybody does comedy. My, you know, my age, they, they try comedy at least once. So mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of some of the the greats, you know, uh, Chris Rock and and Dave Chappelle and you know Richard Pryor and all these people, like George Carlin, and they got all their best material from digging deep into themselves and going as deep as they could go. And the deeper they went, the funnier it was. And it wasn't just because we're laughing at them and their, you know, their foibles, their, their, uh, their mishaps in their lives, but we're seeing a part of ourselves. And right, the, yeah. the way I, I was able to summarize uh, comedy and laughter is laughter is being, that laughter is like crying, it's a release. Crying is a release of sadness, and laughter is a relief, uh, a release of, of like a, a something that we're disconnected or feel awkward about, and that's why like things like sex and and stuff like that that we feel awkward about, we don't talk about. That's that's like half of the jokes that everybody does. So mm-hmm. Oh yeah. When people are digging yeah. out that kind of material, they're getting to the deepest part of us, those masters of comedy, the deepest part of you know, people, what people are trying to hide about themselves and letting people laugh at it and release that, that energy. Right, yeah, and that's a major defense mechanism, so. Yeah. So, yeah, um, well, you... No, go ahead. Do you... Did I, did I stop? You were going to say something, or...? No, well, I, I, I've never read Freud's book on humor, you know, because he has this you know, jokes in relation to the unconscious. And people have always told me about it, you know, that he basically, you know, they feel that most of what Freud was saying overall was not applicable, except for his dream work. Mm. And then I remember a long time ago, somebody was telling me about that book about, you know, the jokes in the unconscious or whatever, and how that was something to, you know, but I, I never read it, so I don't really know what Freud's theory on joking is. But uh, I think Drew Carey referenced it one time in an interview. So maybe he has a little bit, little something to say about it. Yeah. But um, 
one of the things we were also, you and I were talking about uh, before we started the interview, you were talking about you had an experience with astral projection. Is that something you want to share? Or did yeah, well, it was basically, um, I, mean, I don't know if this is technically astral projection, but what happened was, was a friend of mine was in a really bad car accident. And the damage was mostly to his face. So he went through a long period of time where he was, um, I don't know how to put it, he was going through like physical plastic surgery and whatnot, and then he had still shards of bone sticking in his brain, which made him hallucinate in very bizarre, violent ways, right? And he, he was telling me about this technique one of the doctors was giving him to try to alleviate the pain without taking drugs. And I thought, wow, it sounds like, you know, something like really simple, easy to do. So, um, you know, lie down on my floor, and I'm, like, doing the same thing. I relax and blah, blah, blah. And I do this technique. And then the next thing I know is I'm hovering above myself and looking down at myself. So I guess you'd call that, what is that, leaving your body, basically. You know, that... Yeah, that, that's... That's what that's what is normally called astral projection or out of body okay. experience. Yeah, out of body experience. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking down at myself and I was like, "Oh my god!" And I freak out and I just kind of like shuddered violently and then was back in my body and I'm like, "Wow, I'm never gonna do that again. That was too much." Yeah. So, um, but that I only tried once a long, long time ago. Well, that's cool. I'm and glad I I'm glad I asked you. Oh, go ahead, please. Um, well, yeah. Um, and I was never really compelled to try it since then, you know, because I'm really into this other thing I keep talking about, uh, active imagination. Um, and that, I, mean, I don't know what, I don't know if that's really related to this, because this experience when I left my body was like so, almost like matter of fact. You know what I mean? It was almost like it happened, and I'm saying to myself, oh, yeah, no, that's me. Look, I left my body. Look at my body. And then, Boom, I caught myself and I freaked out. I was like, ah, no, I mean, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, the. I mean, I was, I was electrocuted once. I almost died. And I had that um, classic experience, unlike before I was saying I saw my life pass in front of me in my dream imagery. This was like the actual verbatim imagery. Okay. It was just like in the movies, I always tell you about, you see your life pass in front of you. And you see this tunnel with a light coming towards you, and then, you know, when the light hits you, then you're dead. So I didn't get that far. I got, like, I saw the light, a little tiny light, and then I, you know, fell away from what was electrocuting me. Um, so, but I, I did have another experience, which is, I guess, somewhere in between the two, where I, um, uh, again, I had another girlfriend I broke up with and whatnot, and I was, and I, but I said to myself, this time, I'm not going to spend all this time being heartbroken and moping and not feeling sorry for myself. I'm just not going to do that. So um, what I did was I went out and I bought Barbie Barbie doll, but the Barbie had this friend, like a brunette. I forget what her name was. But that's who this woman looked like. She looked like Barbie's brunette friend. So I went out and I bought one. And it was in my apartment. And I did this sort of like, it's a releasing ceremony where you, you know, say, okay, look, I'm going to let you go in peace and blah, 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 blah. I forget, you know, what doctor came up with this technique. But so in my kitchen, I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm release you, blah, 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 blah. 
And then it happened again where I saw my life pass in front of me. So it wasn't in the dream imagery. It was like when I got electrocuted. I actually saw my life verbatim pass in front of me. There wasn't any light into the tunnel, but that had triggered something, that a near-death experience. So, yeah. so uh, those are my two experiences. I actually had um, a near-death experience that was a, a precognitive one that uh, was a lucid dream, if, you, if you'd like to hear. Oh, yeah, sure, definitely. I I didn't remember the dream to the actual thing actually happened. So what the dream was, I was I was young, uh, early teens, and I was ice skating at night on the town pond where I live, where I grew up, and I was by myself playing hockey, just practicing the hockey by myself, and. I started skating towards the far end of the pond, and what I didn't see was there was a hole in the ice. And in the dream, I slipped and ended up falling into the hole of, of uh, mm -hmm. water, and that's where the dream ended. Right. And when this event actually happened, I'm, I'm, the same exact thing was happening. I was at night skating around, practicing hockey. Nobody else was around. I slipped, and while I'm sliding towards the hole, I remember the dream instantly. Mm, wow. And I was able to stop myself maybe a good 6 to 12 feet before the hole. Like, in right. the dream, I kind of skated right into the hole. But it, mm -hmm. Mm. in reality, since I remembered the dream, I fell right down to my, to my face. You know what I mean? I fell right on my right. body right. to stop the sliding process. And I was able to do mm. it myself. So, wow. Yeah, it stuck with me. It, like having that dream and being able to uh, to save myself. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing with the journals is, you know, like you have these dreams or whatever, you forget about them, you go back years later, and then it's like, oh, my God, wait a minute. This happened, like, verbatim to me, you know? So it's this. There's some some mechanism out there is pulling those strings. I don't know what it is, but yeah. Once you start following your dreams, you just you know it's like you really become more aware of certain things, you know, and um, you you see these predictions if that's what it is, and then it's up to you what you do with them. But uh, most people don't don't buy that most people like totally write that off it's like oh no you're dreaming now you know so yeah. hey do you mind going into um kind of a step-by-step -step of the, <clears throat> the the method that you were taught by your friend who had that that problem and what, mm -hmm. the method that you tried when you did the astral projection do you mind giving us a step-by-step sure. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's really simple. All you do is you lie down on the floor, get as relaxed as humanly possible. You know, sometimes it helps, like those yoga techniques, you tense up your whole body first and then relax. Or you lay down on the floor and you just start relaxing your feet. When your feet are relaxed, you relax your thighs, and then you just work your way up to the head. And then, basically, all the doctor told this guy to do was, once you're relaxed, 
really, really concentrate. Put all your effort into relaxing your hands. Just like all your effort, all your energy, just, just relaxing your hands, you know. And that's what I did. And then it just happened. So I don't know what it is about hands, but that was the technique. Very simple. Well, possibly, and uh, no, I can't say for sure, but um, some people use their crown chakra or their, their third eye chakra as an exit portal, like mm -hmm. an area for their consciousness, for their astral energy. Mm -hmm. And right. your hands have those same type of like chakras, you have major chakras in your hands, so it could be oh, really? that you hmm. used, you know, that you can use the hands also as an exit portal for your consciousness or your energy, your, your astral energy. Because I've, I've heard that all of your chakras, you can focus on one or the other and, and use that as, a, as an exit portal. But uh, maybe I'll, I'll find somebody who can kind of, you know, put that uh, into, uh, and see if, see if that, mm. that's a true, that's true. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense because I think it's maybe an Indian, maybe, I always think of this, this image of this hand. You know, you kind of see people wearing it as a pendant or whatever. I don't know if it has an eye in the palm, but this is, um, this image, I, I know I've seen it. It's like a hand. Yeah, with the circle, the swirl. The circle, yeah, swirl of the thing. So, and then, too, I mean, that could tie into that whole thing, you know, with the Christ myth about, you know, his wounds of his hands, uh, you know. But uh, that makes sense. I didn't know about the chakras, about the, the, the hand chakras. So it's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So um, is, there, is there anything else that maybe I didn't ask or um, anything, you know, from uh, Carl Jung's work or something that, that might be something else you want to add before we uh, before we wrap up. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, my latest experience I've had was um, well, when I was a real little kid, right, like really little. My mother brought me to the Museum of Natural History, and uh, we were going to the dinosaur wing or whatever, and I see all these monsters that really terrified me. And I turned the corner, and there was this thing that scared me so much as a little kid, I still have nightmares about it, right? And what it is is this um, Ice Age cave bear, which is this, like, really big bear, and it's, um, like, looming over you. It's, like, leaning out to you, like it's going to just jump on you and kill you, right? So as a real little kid, I mean, I just froze. I was terrified of this thing. And yet, through my life, I kept thinking about it and dreaming about it and whatnot. So, uh, I joined a group of artists that the uh, Museum of Natural History lets you go in after they're closed at night and draw whatever you want to in the Museum of Natural History. You, know, you have to sign up for it, join this thing, whatever. So, I did that. So, I'm like in the museum late at night. A few people, and it's—I don't know—it's like that movie, you know, *Night in the Museum*, which really terrifying. Everything yeah. is. And I said, "Mr. Friedman, now I've been the, the the thing I have this nightmare about is in this building, right?" So I'm saying to myself, "Oh no, I'm too scared to go up there, right?" 
And I'm saying to myself, you know, oh, what are you, chicken? I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I'm So I had this, like, weird debate in my head about, like, I don't, I really don't want to go at night into the dinosaur wing by myself and find this thing that terrifies me more than anything. So I um, waited till the next day and go in the next day when there were people, lights were on and everything. And I met this woman. Like, I got up the elevator, and I'm looking around, and somebody comes up to me and she goes, oh, hi, can I help you with anything? And I said, well, yeah, I'm looking for the cave bear. And she goes, okay, let me show you. And she was basically the person there, the, the dinosaur expert, who like just takes walks you around and answers questions for you. I didn't know, I didn't know her anything. So she walks me down this hallway and thinks, oh, God, get ready, get ready. Oh, no, uh, turn the corner, there it is again, right? And this thing still scares the hell out of me. But then I like went up to it and I walk around it. And I said, this thing is like huge. And you can you imagine running into this, whatever? So I, um, you know, I, I do like photo collages. That's one of my things, my hobbies. So I go to the New York Public Library, which is this humongous picture collection. Let's have a million and a half pictures. You just go in and say, you know, to the librarian, hi, do you have any pictures of cave bears, ice age cave bears? And they're like, oh, yes, of course. We have an ice age cave bear. So I got this whole folder full of ice age cave bear pictures, right? And so I went home and I started to collage it. And I took pictures of myself from the age that I first was so terrified by them. And I put me in the cave with the cave bear. Right? So you do that and you're like, you know, you know, well, this is interesting, whatever. But you make a copy of it, you put it on your wall. And then as you walk by it during the day or at night or whatever, your peripheral vision starts to like examine it, right? And they say that one of the routes, one of the direct routes into your unconscious is through the peripheral vision. It's almost like subliminals, basically. So then I got to see my wall for a few weeks, and all of a sudden, like, all these revelations start pouring out, you know. I found, you know, I just found out a lot about my stuff, myself, and the things that I had really repressed as a kid, and what this cave bear meant to me, and the timing, and it was just like this... The cornucopia basically opened up. So that's probably like my favorite technique and my most valuable technique. Again, it's like, you know, you go out and you decide which part of your unconscious you want to access. You find the imagery of it. You go out and actually do something physical that this entity would do. And then you just, if you can, as an artist, you can make pictures of it. If not, you know, a song about it. Do something that's creative to kind of reinforce this character and it will slowly start to come to you and you know like i said if it's like with the anima and it's something you suppressed it's going to be really annoyed the first time out but then you know with the, i guess using the word report you know report report but you start to have a report with yourself basically so well, that's my dream hobby <laughs> that's great I think I think uh, listeners can get a lot out of that. I think especially people who that that's a very practical thing. You know, doing a a collage or a journal that's something you can physically hold in your hand. So I think even people that may not have such a, a mystic kind of background or metaphysical background, you know, maybe not believe in that stuff. We can all kind of believe in having a dream journal and do you know like putting things in picture form that represent stuff. I mean, dreams 
everybody has dreams. So. Well, do you know, are you familiar with a technique called sand play? Uh, no, no, I've never heard of it. Sand play, I think, was invented in the 50s by a woman, a Jungian, a woman, child therapist. And what she does is, is she has like a box that's probably like, let's say, maybe a foot and a half by three feet. And she paints the inside of the box like sky blue and fills it with sand. Then she has a cabinet next to her, next to the sand box, sand play box, with all the different types of characters in it: horses, sea fish, uh, Superman, blah 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 blah, all the different kind of archetypical toy elements that are that that are available to people. She just collects them and puts them there. And it's a really cool technique because what she does is the kid comes in for therapy. And the kid just comes in the room and she doesn't say anything. The box is there, all these things, you know, toys are there. And um, he doesn't say anything. She just stands there, you know, and the kid starts playing with it. And, you know, he starts moving the sand around. And because it's blue inside, you can make lakes, you can make, you know, rivers, all sort of stuff. And then the kid would just start taking these characters off and, like, arranging them. And um, well, their unconscious basically does it. Their unconscious talks through these image, uh, these archetypes. And, and she photographs it, and she analyzes the kid from there, right? So I thought, well, it's a great technique. i got to try it. I love stuff like that. So I put the box. I make a box paint of blue. goes by all, like, what's about 200 different types of archetypes and whatnot. And then just left it in my apartment. And I just was at the table. All the stuff was there, but I didn't say anything, right? So this guy I know, who had a very unusual childhood, comes in my apartment real cynical kind of guy, you know, and he, um, he's just kind of looking at this thing, and he, and he says, what is this? I said, that's sand, you know, that's a box of sand, isn't it? But he started playing with it, and the scenes this guy created were so telling, right, and I, I was, like, shocked, you know, I was, like, I didn't want to say anything, but I was, like, like wow, oh, my God, you're basically putting all your neurosis like out in public here with this thing so you might be interested in just checking into that because it's a really really strong tool and people have now started using it you know um i guess around the world it's like you know same place become a, a form of therapy for kids and again you don't talk to the kid the kid just is totally on his own so it's really pure unconscious material that's really cool yeah, I've I've never heard of it. That sounds so uh, yeah. That sounds so like uh, allowing yourself you go, to play. Yeah, go you go on YouTube and you see all these different people that do it, like around the world now. You know, like a guy in Hawaii has like an out, outdoor sand play thing with a bamboo case he built, and you know, people in Japan have their way of doing it. So it's like all these different cultures are starting to do it, and um, it's just really cool because you know we all grow up in certain cultures with certain images and that's what um it's kind of like very you know that's how we interpret things it's like you know for me it's always been like superman and batman those are superheroes so when i see superman and batman i already have all this knowledge and all this emotion invested in them and you put them in this like neutral sandbox and it's just it's amazing how they you know how they interact with the other um the characters yeah yeah, and if your subconscious doesn't have words, because if it's like the deepest part of us, 
it could communicate yeah. through pictures, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So that would be my uh, my secondary thing if you want to just research it because it's just it's amazing when you do it yourself what yeah. comes up. Yeah. And, um, people come over, your friends come over, don't say anything, and they're like, oh, we got it. <laughs> so. yeah, who doesn't want to play with sand? Ooh. It's just so, something about it, yeah, so those primal, almost like lava, you know, it's just a real primal thing that people, everybody, you know, nobody's prejudiced against sand, so. And now to think about it, isn't it the Sandman is the uh, dream archetype, right? That's so. that's too perfect. Sandman. That, that fits too well. Yeah. All right, so I think uh, we'll leave it there. And okay, if you want to share your email, if people have questions for you, if people want to get in touch, maybe uh, you know connect. Certainly. Can you? Yeah. Want to my, e my email is g e o r g e. H O S S number eight at gmail.com. Cool. All right. All right. I I appreciate so much. You've you've given you had a lot of little tidbits of gold. I appreciate. I'm going to be listening over this interview a few times. I'm sure. Okay. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Cool. So we have been listening to or talking with. We've been talking with uh, Chris Hoffman, and. Uh, I've totally enjoyed this interview. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. Bye. You too. So, yeah, that was Chris, and I hope everybody liked that interview. Uh, you can get in touch with Chris. He left his email. You can get in touch with me, as usual, uh, at uh, the Astral World Podcast at gmail.com. Check out the Facebook group and the Facebook page, the Astro World Podcast, and support on Patreon if you can. That'd be cool. All right, have a great day today, and I hope you're uh, hope you're doing well. All right, bye.